In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings from the Hill Country of Central Texas. This is Revolution of Military Affairs, and I'm your host, Amos Fox. All right, so today on Revolution Military Affairs, we have, or we're doing something a little different. So this is a continuation of the Hyperjet uh, series. We started with Mike Betzer a few weeks ago, or a few episodes ago. Uh, we're going to continue today with uh, with uh, Jay McGuire and Mike Van Lent of Hypergiant, and we'll get into, uh, I'll let them give a brief uh, overview of who they are and what they do for the company uh, here in just a moment. Uh, but we're uh, we're doing we're doing two people today at once. We're talking to two people, so this will be a learning experience for me for sure because this is the first time I've done that. So anyway, Jay is the uh, is the chief of staff for Hypergiant. We also I've known Jay for several years. Uh, we were at the School of Advanced Military Studies together. Uh, funny story about Jay. So I was a student down the hall, and I got an email one day from uh, Colonel Jay McGuire when I was Major uh, Amos Fox, and it said. Hey, I read this article. Come see me. And I thought I was in trouble. And I was like, oh, God, <laughs> I'm going to get yelled at by this colonel for writing something that kind of poked the way the Army was thinking. And he was like, hey, this is terrific. I love this thing. This is great. Let's talk about this. So that's Jay. And uh, I'll give him just a moment to introduce himself. And then we've got Mike Van Lent as well. So, gentlemen, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And Jay, if you would, real quick, go first, introduce yourself, what you do, and then we'll pass it over to Mike. Sure. Thanks, Amos. It's uh, it's uh, always an honor to talk to you and uh, be, be part of this podcast. Uh, so my name is Jay McGuire. Like Amos said, I am the current chief of staff of Hypergiant Industries. Uh, we have a commercial practice and a, and a federal practice, and I work directly for the CEO. And I ensure that the uh, his uh, his intent is synchronized and, and uh, orchestrated throughout the company. So it's not anything uh, too different than what you and I are used to, Amos, when it comes to the regular chief of staff role. Yep. I'm more of an operational chief of staff uh, on the commercial in the on the commercial side of life, um, and uh, that's what I do. And I'm happy to talk about our technology later on in the podcast. 
All right. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, hi, I'm Mike Van Land. I'm the director of AI, actually at Soar Technology. Uh, so I'm part of a sister company of Hypergiant, but not actually part of the, the Hypergiant uh, staff. Yeah. Uh, Soar Technology, we're a, a DOD-focused research company doing artificial intelligence. So the company's been around for about 25 years. Uh, the company was started as a spinoff of a, a DARPA project mm-hmm. back in the uh, late 90s. Uh, looking at the applications of, of AI to, to simulation for training, experimentation, all sorts of purposes. We've since grown into a much larger company that is very focused on human-centered AI. So our belief at Soartech is AI is going to be most effectively deployed, especially within the Defense Department, in support of a human decision maker. And we focus on building the kinds of AI that, that work closely with humans that the human can understand what it's doing and how it's doing it. The human can build trust and the AI understands what the human's doing. So they really can, can collaborate uh, instead of just working side by side. Uh, my background, PhD in artificial intelligence from Michigan. I've worked in academia at the University of Southern California. I've worked in government labs at the Naval Research Lab. Been at Soartech now for uh, 15 years. I spent 14 of those 15 years as the CEO of the company and transitioned out of that role into the director of AI role uh, in 2023 when Soartech and Hypergiant were collectively acquired as part of a, a package of companies that's being put together. All right. Thank you. That's, uh, that's a good segue into uh, the topic for today. So we're going to talk again about AI, uh, but specifically we're going to talk about human-centered AI and then trust in AI. But uh, we're going to work our way through a couple of uh, questions that I have for you guys to, to to build through this and to work through these two ideas, this human-centered AI and and uh, uh, trust in AI. So we talked with Mike uh, Betzer recently about AI and what AI is and isn't. And so just a general question for the both of you to uh, set the scene here. What What is AI? And I think specifically, what is human-centered AI? So I'll start. So the old joke in the AI community is uh, AI is this like magical thinking machine that that we don't know how to build. And every time we figure out how to build some aspect of intelligence, whether it's search or machine learning, we go, oh, that's not really AI. That's just search or that's just machine learning or that's just constraint optimization. So I personally think of of AI as a system which uh, senses some external system, whether that be the real world or a simulation environment or, or teammates, makes decisions about how to pursue goals in that environment and then takes actions in pursuit of that goal. So uh, my vision of AI is, is a very interactive system that follows that sort of sense, think, act cycle uh, many, many times a second. Jay, anything to add on that? Yeah, so I, I have a tendency to you know put my... Uh... From a from a military perspective, uh, artificial intelligence to me really is a is a decision aid um, that informs <clears throat> that informs me uh, to the environment, to the status of my weapon systems, to the status of the things that are in my environment, <clears throat> in my domain that I need to be aware of, so that I can make the best decision possible to put me in a position to take further action. Um, Sometimes I think, you know, this gets compared to a rheostat where if we're losing really bad, we can, we're going to turn the AI all the way up and everything is going to be okay. Or if 
we, we are not losing. We're going to kind of turn the real stat all the way down. Um, and we won't really need what AI is supposedly uh, able to bring to the, the future fight. And I have a tendency to think that that real stat is best, you know, in, the, in, in between low and all the way up. Um, because I think there's just so much data that that uh, in particular the Army and the Joint Force in particular is dealing with on a day-to-day basis that they really do need the power of artificial intelligence to sift, go through the data, and make sure that the right data is being presented at the right time to the right person um, in that decision chain so that the right outcome can be achieved. And I think I think at least in Hypergiant's perspective, we certainly aspire to do that for the Air Force and some of the products that we're building today for them. Um, and as we continue to build that out, we are also learning what the Air Force is learning in terms of how we design our solutions. And we really are centered on the user experience as far as Hypergiant is concerned, maybe not Sortec, but mm-hmm. um, that's our perspective on how we achieve best results is making sure that the human is definitely part of how we design our solutions. Whereas other companies may not take that into account as much as we do. So I think that's the, that's the differentiator uh, between us and some other companies that are out there in that space. So I know I drifted a little bit, but no, um, no, no, that's all good. That's, that's what that's, AI uh, means to me. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, um, so we'll jump off. I like the, the user experience aspect. I'm going to use that to shape the next couple of uh, questions. But really quick, Mike, you had said something that triggered some, some a question that I didn't actually have planned for you um, and I hadn't thought through before. But the way you describe the process through which AI works, it sounds very much like systems theory to me. Um, and it sounded like, so I, I've, I've read a lot of systems theory because I think it's very useful and I actually think that it's how almost everything works, even though we may not necessarily acknowledge that or appreciate that. And so is that, what are the foundational ideas, I guess, that undergird AI from a philosophical standpoint? Um, I'm, I'm yeah. going to nerd out with you for a second on that and then we'll jump back into the user uh, the user experience aspect. Sure. So, so a, a, an AI agent, I mean, there are lots of, you know, theoretical kind of toy AI agents, but, but an AI agent can do something real, like the kind of decision support uh, aid that, that Jay was talking about, you can absolutely describe as a system of systems, right? Mm-hmm. So, first of all, the AI is part of a larger system, right? Yep. You've got the AI, you've got the human user, you've got the task, you've got other systems. So that AI is one one system within within a larger system. And then within that AI are a series of systems, right? There's usually some sort of perception system. That could be a system that, you know, in, in Jay's case is, you know, listening to the user, uh, you know, doing things like, like natural language understanding, speech to text, maybe uh, even tracking the user's, you know, body posture, where the user is looking, eye tracking, perceiving various aspects of the of the the task and the domain, right? So there's a lot of uh, kind of foundational AI work in all those kinds of areas of perception, which is one system within the AI system. Then you have what you can call the reasoning or the thinking part, the thing that it says, okay, here's my goal, here's what I know about the world, like, you know, what what can I do? What actions can I take? What what advice or help can I give to the to the user to help you know the human user team get closer to the goal? So that's 
that's that kind of thinking or reasoning piece within the system. There's also often there a learning piece, right? Okay, you know, last time I did this, did that work well? Is there something better I can do next time, right? So that this, the, the AI's uh, uh, performance or, or advice to the human improves time after time. So there's the, the learning piece within the system. And then there's the action piece. Okay, I kind of, you know, I, I know what I want to do. What's the action I take? That action can be an utterance. I'm going to say something to my human partner, uh, give them a piece of advice, point out to something they might not know, suggest a course of action to them, or it can be an action in, in the real world, right? I'm going to, you know, I'm going to drive this robot to this point and point a camera in that direction to try to see something. So each of those is, is a system, right? You've got the perception system, the reasoning system, the learning system, the action system, and then each of those you can break down even further if you want. So it is, I think, very valid to think about the kind of, of engineered AI systems that, that Sortec and Hypergiant build that are designed to help users in real-world tasks as you know, a, a hierarchy of systems being yeah. built up. That's a little distinct, I think, than, than a lot of the academic exploration of AI, where you know, a professor picks one of those systems inside the AI, and their career is making that system better than, than it was before, pushing the, the state of the art. Uh, what we at companies like Sortec and Hypergiant do is we take all those, those improvements in the individual systems and do the system engineering to put them together into to real solutions to work with, with real users on real world problems. It sounds like it's fairly simple work too. <laughs> Based off that, and that, that, I think the idea that you said there that, that is important to, to help frame this next set of questions and conversation is the, the learning piece, right? So it's not just static, um, th- a static process that exists, it's, it's tied to that user experience. And so, uh, taking this from the theoretical side and from the ideas side in general and pushing it down towards the applied side of things, um, how does AI change military command moving into the future? So the U.S. military, especially the Army itself, is very commander-centric, right? The commander is always the smartest guy in the room. Jay, I know you know nothing about that. And uh, commanders are, uh, you know, the end-all, be-all when it comes to decisions, right? And a lot of times... You know, staffs will come in with this great plan and they'll be like, hey, boss, here's the plan. Uh, do you want to go with A, B, or C? And the boss rubs his or her tummy and says, I'm going to do D, right? And so how, and I know I'm being somewhat tongue-in-cheek there, but uh, based off, you know, what we currently view military command, how do you think AI changes that moving forward? Well, certainly I think it changes the risk calculation. <clears throat> um, and I think <clears throat> looking forward into the future, as it applies to the army, um, how we assess risk, everything from like collateral damage estimates to, um, you know, these staff, these, uh, you know, evolving staff sections that, uh, are designed sometimes beginning in an ad hoc manner, formalized later based around a battlefield requirement, like the JAGIC, the joint air of the ground integration cell. I think, Artificial intelligence has the capacity to remove those cells in the future um, and will create an opportunity for the army to move faster um, as it as it as the the targets kind of appear on the horizon uh, because AI will generate the firing solutions, you know, in 
in in nanoseconds compared to you know minutes right yeah um and that includes the assessment of uh the legal assessment that needs to occur in uh, on those battlefields which ostensibly means that you know like cells like the jagic were designed to move faster but i think in the end we've kind of found out that there's probably some some uh, another another staff echelon is not really the best case <laughs> so um and i say that tongue in cheek because i you know <clears throat> i do understand and reading the literature i understand why those cells are designed and, and why they're required but i think artificial intelligence in the in the future will change the risk calculus and it really will bring to bear these these really philosophical questions around human in on or off the loop you know which one do you want to be which commander do you want to be when that real stat needs to go all the way to the right yeah are you really truly off the loop and if you are what conditions need to exist on the battlefield where you would actually need to do that um, and I think those types of philosophical, and I say philosophical because they are philosophical right now. Oh, absolutely. We really, we really don't have, you know, <clears throat> any other way of kind of intellectually de- dealing with these concepts. Yep. But when we look at collateral damage estimates and we look at the process by which that process moves, right, and how that that CDE process gets to a commander, um I think that alone will cause a tectonic shift in how we apply kinetic effects in the future. Mike, you got any? Yeah, two two things. I completely agree. I think two things that that are really interesting from a kind of a technical AI perspective. One is, you know, in that plan A, B, C, and D that you described earlier, a Mm -hmm. key part of that is commander's intent. And a key part of how the U.S. military works is, you know, there's the plan, there's also commander's intent, and if there's, you know, a, the, the plan goes out the window, you can still operate off commander's intent. Um, AI has a lot of potential to help with that kind of a situation, but that means you need to give AI commander's intent mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, it understands what the goals are and what the constraints on those goals are. And that's, that's a pretty challenging question from an AI perspective because, you know, you're not really defining in, in, in technical detail exactly what you want. You're, you're giving a high-level intent and expecting the AI to do the extrapolation. That's a, a, a fascinating challenge that, that you know, we work on at Sortec. Another area that, that you mentioned is you know, you've got three commanders in the room. They're going to have three different plans because they have yeah. three different decision-making styles. So if you're going to build an AI that's going to work with an individual commander, it needs to have a model of that commander's style and individualize itself to, to that person. Um, and that's another area we're looking at. You know, there's some really interesting domains where experts with the same level of experience, same training, working off the same doctrine, they make different decisions because, you know, one might be more, you know, risk tolerant. I'm gonna I'm gonna go for the home run, even if it's a little more risky. Another one might be more conservative. If if the AI is gonna support those people and it's going to be trusted by those people it needs to work within their style not in some generic style and so how you capture these what we call key decision making attributes and tailor the ai to the individual person is another really interesting area uh that that we're looking at and amos i just i just i i feel compelled to add here i think it's important 
you know, from from Hypergiant standpoint, the way that we look at the, you know, where we kind of started, we look at, you know, when you look across the industries and where AI is functioning today, the way that not maybe that we aspire AI to function, but maybe at a lower level, um, look at the finance industry, um, fintech, right? I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned there in terms of the algorithms that they have written if you're a hedge fund manager, your sense of risk is not necessarily different than a military commander's sense of risk. Hedge fund managers, they hire analysts to look at the market environment and make trades based on the sense of risk that a hedge fund manager has. Yeah. So if, if you have a portfolio of $10 million and you want to execute a trade below the $10 million threshold, well, that real stat's all the way to the left. It's all the way down. The machine's going to take care of that trade based on the person's sense of risk and based on the portfolio. Yeah. However, if there's a risk, if there's a trade that's going to occur above the $10 million threshold, well, that hedge fund manager is going to pick up the phone and call Mike Van Lent and say, hey, Mike, I need you to kick in five more dollars. I think I think there's a change in the market here that we want you to take advantage of. Can I have your money? That's a different sense of risk, but I also think that Algorithmic trading, the way that it's, the way that it, it runs today, and I would, I would look at uh, platforms like Aladdin that BlackRock has, right? Mm -hmm. I, I would look there for some answers that can be applied to what the military sense of AI uh, aspires to be, especially when it comes to risk management. And I think that's that always, as you know, and as Mike knows, that's always in the commander's, you know, the yeah. risk to my troops, the risk to mission, that tension that exists between the two. And is it worth it to go left, to go right, right to go up the middle? I think there's some valuable lessons learned there. Yeah. The, one of the interesting things about that too, as you guys are both talking, they kept coming to my mind is something that I've heard a thousand times um, over the course of the past 20 years. And it's um, this, there, there's this dichotomy. So the phrase is I'm going to wait to the last possible moment to make a decision. But then at the same time, we're talking about speeding up decision making. And I think that those two things are in conflict with one another in many regard. And so I think a lot of these, uh, you know, when we talk about command and commanders, they're going to have to almost reprogram themselves because it's they say the one thing, but they really want to do the other. Right. They, we talk about speeding up and doing things quicker. But really, I think a lot of folks are afraid to just make a decision and go right and react and, and continue making decisions. And they, they do want to wait to the last possible moment to make a decision. And so it's just this interesting dichotomy as you guys were talking about this and the, the way that it can speed up and accelerate uh, decision-making and help make decisions quicker and perhaps yeah. better. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I agree with that. Now, Mike, I'm let, let you chime in here, but I think there's an important point here. You know, as AI becomes more robust, as the algorithms become, you know, more durable, Mm -hmm. and lasting um i think we're, what we're going to see in the in the future is a place where ai becomes more predictable in the environment for example the weather report that you see on accuweather is only good out to you know some would say seven days max mm -hmm. at the eighth day the model kind of falls apart it gets a little shaky Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I think in the future, to your point, Amos, about... You know, do I make a decision now or do I can I make a decision two days from now? I think we're going to find uh, ourselves in a place where we're actually using AI to model those decisions in real time based on the data that's that, it, you know, it's ingesting from sensors and everything else. Um, and that decision will be basically um, good for three to four days. Right. Yeah. In the environment. And I think that's a really interesting way to think about AI as it as it kind of um, gets more durable, gets more reliable, gets more accurate. Uh, and I think it, it will hopefully we'll get to a place where those predictions, they last 14 days. They don't mm. last just seven days. Right. You go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I just you know, the, the, the challenge there is, you know, there's a cost to waiting to make a decision. Right. You're yeah. you're losing out on the opportunity to, to take an action now and have the, the benefits from that action sooner. There's also a benefit to waiting to make a decision, right? You're, you're gonna gain more information and that might improve the quality of your decision. I think one of the things you know, that Jay's talking about is the AI can help you, you know, predict and measure those costs, right? Yep. And say like, hey, you know, it's, it's better to act now because you're gonna gain this and you're only gonna lose that. The benefit outweighs the cost. Turning that, you know, that, that, that dichotomy between least commitment and and bias for action into uh, something that you can you can measure and you can can think about uh, quantitatively, I think is one of the places AI can help. I think that that's actually a really good idea. It's like, hey, here's here's the uh, here's here's what happens if you wait. And it's like, here's the data, mm -hmm. you know, here's what happens right. if you go now. And, you know, it, it almost is like a tree, a decision tree off of each of those decisions. Um, all right. So as we're talking about command here and decision making i think one of the critical things to to bring up too as we talk about this is as we saw with russia's invasion of ukraine initially in 2014 but then also since then in 2022 on to today uh command posts have become something that's very um very identifiable on the battlefield because a they've gotten so big but b because of everything that they um push up into the sky uh, or the theoretical sky, right? All the signatures that they um, push off. And so does AI, based off uh, you guys' understanding of AI, is AI going to potentially increase the size of staffs because more people are going to have to manage the systems and uh, do, do other things like that? Or is it actually going to make the, the size of a staff decrease? You know, somebody can just do what was what would normally be ten people's one person in a you know a computer uh, just using that as an example, and so the 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 footprint of a command post decreases. So, 
Uh, does AI help or hurt the size of staffs um, and command posts? Yeah, I, <laughs> I certainly think it's going to shrink staffs. Um, and if you if you're honest or the audience is honest, like, you know, um, I have asked ChatGPT to write me a platoon level op order to attack Hill 5-7 with artillery and, and, and Apache helicopters. And it will spit out a it'll spit out a platoon level order to do that all the way up to a division level order. Um, there, there's some, you know, there's some things it won't do there, but um, it's clear what the future holds. Yeah. So I think it's definitely going to answer your question. I think it's going to definitely shrink staffs. And I also believe that, <clears throat> you know, my last experience as a commander in Afghanistan under general Miller, who really proved to me that the commander does not, need big staffs and if he does he or she does need a big a, a, a large staff then that staff can certainly be with the communications technology that we have today that staff does not necessarily need to go forward to the battlefield mm-hmm. that staff can be the same staff at Fort Riley Kansas uh, and the command cell can be forward in a tactical environment receiving information from the staff um, in terms of dis, you know the distribution of our force structure across the across the uh, the battlefield yeah um, so I, I really do think that that's a culture thing that, that we're grappling with but a hundred percent agree with you Amos that the war in Ukraine has certainly started that that discussion and that's evident in the literature that I've read that I know we've all read yeah. about that war it's starting to influence the army um and probably the marines and anybody that operates on the terrain mm-hmm. that we have to shrink and we have to distribute um our presence uh, so that we don't give off these large signatures that can be targeted from you know space cyberspace uh and and just kinetically uh so i i i would assume in the future that the army is going to have to grapple with the fact that just my opinion um that the size of staffs will certainly be impacted just the way that hypergiant industries is impacted is the same way that the services or the joint force would be impacted. I'll, I'll jump in and just say, you know, one of the, one of the ways we describe AI at Sortec is as a force multiplier, right? You know, the, the same number of people can, can do more work or fewer people can do the same work. So uh, for exactly the reasons Jay mentioned, I think, I think you know, the size of staff is going to go down. I think that's you know, one, one part of a much larger societal uh, change we're going to experience, which is AI is going to, you know, a lot of jobs that currently humans do, AI is going to be able to, to take over, not entirely, but you know, you're going to need fewer people to do to the same job. And I think that's going to have uh, a, a pretty revolutionary impact on society. The other thing I might suggest is is that staff could be distributed, right? Jay mentioned having a command cell back, you know, back in in the U.S., or you could have you know different members of the staff spread out uh, over the battlefield, uh, but still staying at the, the same level of of communication and coordination, uh, rather than having the whole staff in one location that's you know got a big geographic footprint and a big signals footprint. Maybe you can spread them out. Um, and have them in different places, be getting better, more more direct uh, information from them, 
and uh, you know have them each each you know each generating a, a smaller a smaller signal footprint. One of the things that I I keep you guys keep spurring uh, additional thoughts in my head, so I'm kind of dragging on here. But <laughs> one of the things that I keep thinking about the two is that there's two things on on this distributed um, uh, discussion. So one thing is. There's this odd human aspect, though, that I don't, it'll be challenging, I think, for humans to get over. So I know some leaders are very much like, if I don't see you, I don't trust you, and I don't think that you're actually doing your job, especially if you do a job that doesn't generate, hey, look at me stuff, right? So if you're just somebody that does things behind the scenes, right, um, but your boss likes to see things, right? Hey, look at this presentation and here's all this, you know, look, those kind of things. I think that'll be a challenge. Um, it, you know, it may not, it'll be a challenge, but it may not matter, you know, like it, it'll just be something people have to get over, but that'll be unique. I think because I've seen that more often than not, that a lot of like leaders, whoever the leader is, you know, I'm using that term in a generic sense. They're like, if I can't see you and I don't see you producing something, I don't think you're doing work. Uh, the other thing, and this is the thing that I think is really interesting, and I actually asked Mike about this too when we talked, uh, Mike Mike Betzler. Um, but you know, you talk about distributed, and some of the some of the things wouldn't even have to go forward, and they could be uh, still in the states. You know, contributing and participating in the battlefield, and we already see that, right, with some of the stuff coming out in Ellis Air Force Base and whatnot. So then, does that, especially considering the fact that we have hypersonics today, right, does that make those locations targets? Like, does Fort Riley become a legitimate target if, you know, countries X that we were operating against decided to shoot a hypersonic missile at Fort Riley because at first infantry division headquarters, they had cells working around the clock there. Is that something that you guys have, have seen as a potential problem with this? Um, just curious on your thoughts on that one. I'll jump in there first. Just, I mean, from, from a commander's perspective in the future, uh, to your point about staffs, I think the staffs will will shrink. I just think it'll be different, different, different types of staff officers. So back to my example with al- algorithmic trading. You know, you could we could be in a in a place where the army says, "Hey, I want I want six quantitative analysis uh, analysts on my staff to replace the S one, the S two, the S three, and the S four." Yeah, and they would be responsible for tuning the algorithms based on the commander's needs from day to day uh and there's a there's a you know a version of that universe where in the future the commander's on the battlefield and he notices something um that was recommended to him that was based on an errant piece of information that he received through a sensor and he's in the loop he's not off so he's in it mm-hmm. so he's aware of that and he would call back to to somebody to tune the algorithm to tune that variable out or tune it down or tune it up based on based on the requirement so i think it just be it'll maybe it definitely staffs will reduce but i also i think they'll just be different staffs too yeah uh, potentially unrecognizable from what they are today yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And and if I can just add, I think that the skill set may shift, right? You know, you mentioned earlier, you know, uh, if you have you know one staff member that's really good at writing a course of action, and you have another staff member that's really good at giving the right prompts to ChatGPT to have it generate a course of action, you know, the outcome of that is two equally good courses of action, like you know, 
how, how do you pick which of those skill sets is most valuable? And, and I expect that, you know, there are going to be commanders who are going to prefer the human written course of action. I can tell you, I receive emails that I know people wrote with ChatGPT, and to me, they seem less authentic, less real, less what gets their real thoughts, right? I, and and I put less weight into that than an email I think someone sat down and wrote themselves from scratch. So I think there's going to be, you know, changing skill sets, but also, you know, changing expectations about how, how work products are created. So we've talked a lot about the human aspect of AI and what did we say earlier, human-centered AI, right? And we've talked about the user experience and everything we've talked about so far has been about that. And so trust, um, what is, how does trust in AI uh, work moving forward in the future? And I think part of it, we'll see. And again, I think it'll be, it, it's, two different, it's two different questions almost. You've got trust in the older generation, right? Who doesn't have a PhD from Michigan in AI. So AI to them is something foreign, and it's you know a different language. It's a different culture, if you will. You know, it's something completely different that they have to uh, learn to accept. And then with the younger generation, people coming up, they're going to be taught it from day one, essentially, right? And so it's going to be different. So how does how do you how do you generate trust in AI uh, across the board? So I think trust in AI is is a huge issue, right? I, I have a very strong concern that. We're going to create AI systems that are capable of doing, you know, valuable things, but they're not going to get a chance to have any benefit or any impact within the DoD or elsewhere because they don't have the the the, the capabilities to build the trust with the user. Because they can't get trusted, they're not going to be accepted. They're never going to get a chance to to do that job. So, in my opinion, we need to be thinking about building systems that that can gain trust as much as we're thinking about systems that can do a good job. We at Sortec, we think about three aspects. There's trustworthiness. Is the system good enough that it's worthy of a human's trust? And then there's trustability. Does the system have the, uh, the capabilities to do the things the human needs for the human to learn to trust it? Can it explain to you what it's doing? Does it do what you expect, right? If it doesn't do what you expect, does it acknowledge that it's doing something unexpected and tell you why, right? Uh, does it demonstrate its performance at a high value? And then there's trusted, right? That's a measure of the human. Does the human actually trust the system? So how you build systems that are trustworthy and trustable, two different sets of requirements, and then how you measure the human's trust of the system uh, to make sure that the human doesn't trust the system more or less than they should, right? We talk a lot about trust calibration, right? You want to calibrate the human's trust to the level of trustworthiness of the system. And, you know, if the system knows it can do a great job, it should encourage the human to trust it more. If it's in a situation where it doesn't think it can do very well, it should tell the human, hey, look, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on thin ice here. You better not trust me too much. You want to do that that trust calibration in real time, and we've done some great experiments with this. We have, you know, everything from you know uh, an AI system. We had one case where an Air Force pilot was in simulation, flying with uh, one of our AI systems, and he took his hand off the stick, and we asked why. He said, "I lost confidence in myself in that situation. I thought the AI could do a better job, so I let it I let it take over." 
And then, you know, we've had other situations where the human and the AI are arguing over who's more, more trustworthy, right? And you kind of get in this back and forth about, I, I think I know what to do. I think I know what to do. So, you know, building that, that, that sense of team uh, and that trustworthiness uh, is important. Jay, do you have anything to, to, to build on that? Yeah, I, I just think uh, what Mike said there was brilliant. Uh, I was actually going to say something else, and he got me he got me convinced otherwise. I think that's a critical component. Uh, you know, having the system, having a human interact with the machine, and you know, the human asking the machine like, "Why did you? Why did you do what you did?" And the machine, you know, actually telling you why it made the choice it did will go a long way to closing that trust gap. Yeah, that, that's for sure. First thought. My second thought is, is that we trust our phones today with like, you know, like I know my kids guard their phones with their lives. Like, you know, it's their, it's their ultimate, you know, uh, it's an extension it's ultimate, of themselves almost. Yeah. It's their ultimate device. And so they, they trust it at such a higher, a much higher level than I ever would. Right. Um, and then the third thing is, when it comes to trust, I, I always reflect back on the documentary about AlphaGo, which was Google, you know, the Google DeepMind team that built um, built an algorithm to play AlphaGo against a human competitor. And you know, there were in the documentary there there were two moves that basically the Google DeepMind team could not they they could not um, understand why the machine made the decisions that it made. And I thought that's just a very powerful real world example that happened, I don't know, three to four years ago, five years ago, maybe Mike, you know when that was, but um, that, it, that that's a very important example that ties back into Mike's comment about being able to explain your actions if you're an artificially intelligent system. And I think that would be that would go a long way to uh, kind of mending that fence um, and that and lowering the the bar of skepticism that the that it's really truly intelligent, right? Yeah, that may, I mean that makes perfect sense. It's it's almost the same way you interact with a human, right? A new person shows up at the at the job, and essentially they have to prove to you that they know what they're doing, but at the same time you have to prove to them that you know what you're doing, so that there's this mutual trust between you know, right. boss and subordinate. And so, uh, yeah, yeah that makes I, the other thing I just mentioned there when it comes to, when it comes to like how, you know, how we think about this at Hypergiant, I'm sure Sortec thinks about it this way as well, it, it, you know, and how we perform for, for the air force, the advantage we have is that we just iterate so fast. Right. Mm. So the algorithm that's written today or the contribution that's, that's submitted today to the air force, I think they understand that in a month that's going to be stale and so in terms of the environment and in terms of how the their operators um trust the tools that we give them they understand that that level of performance needs to be sustained throughout the life of the this our service to them as a company right so yeah i think when we're talking about trust i think it's i think it's uh one of those very critical components to um understanding where artificial intelligence is going to go in the future and how humans are going to interact with it and how they're going to overcome their feelings of not trusting it. So it's, it, it's going to take some time, but I think we'll get there. Mike, anything else on that? 
Uh, yeah, I just completely agree. I think, you know, all of those things you, you've mentioned, right, the, you know, someone new shows up, they need to demonstrate that they're trustworthy to you. You hopefully have the benefit of knowing their training, and so they come with some sort of credentials, which can give a, a leg up on building trust. And the idea that Jay mentioned of that tight iteration loop where, you know, hey, if the system isn't working in a way that's going to build trust, let's change it and fix it. So the, the next version that comes out next month, uh, you know, can be a little bit more trustable and hopefully a little more trusted. Those are all just key aspects to this, you know, the, this, this set of capabilities that the system and the development process need to have. Uh, in order to result in, in trusted systems. To conclude here, gentlemen, that's, uh, I, you know, this is something I think you could run down the rabbit hole all day with and spend a, a massive amount of time on. Uh, but due to the sake of time, I know you both are very busy. Uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. I guess before we break, though, is there anything that we haven't hit uh, on any of this topic, you know, whether it's Hypergiant, whether it's AI itself or any, anything in there that either of you guys have before we uh, before we step away? No, I, I just in, in closing, Amos, thanks for the opportunity to talk about Hypergiant briefly uh, at Sortec. Uh, you know, we, we are contributing to defense oriented problems on a daily basis, and uh, we're proud to do it. And uh, I'm, I'm equally proud to be here with you. And it's great to be a part of your podcast. Thanks. Yeah, I'll just the same. Thanks very much for this. This is obviously a topic I love talking about. I've, you know, been been working in and thinking about AI since long before it was cool. Uh, <laughs> there were times at Sortec when we we shied away from using the term artificial intelligence because it was counterproductive from a marketing perspective. So it's nice to be basking in the, the middle of what we call an AI summer. And, uh, you know, the, the thing we need to make sure of is that, you know, we, we make good on the expectations so that, uh, you know, people continue to, to see value in and, and, and create, generate demand for AI. I, I like that AI summer term. That's, that's really good. Yeah. It's uh... better than the AI winters we've been in before. So. <laughs> yeah. It's good to know that you didn't waste your, uh, waste your time on that PhD. You know, it took a yeah. while probably to come full circle, but here we are. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. All right, gentlemen. Well, um, thank you very much for your time. And uh, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. And uh, awesome. thank you very much. Yep. Thanks, thank Amos. You.